0: Exploring the intersection of liberty and character. Welcome to the Read Hour with Lawrence W. Reed.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Lawrence Reed, the host of the Read Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. I'm with the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, or fee.org is our website. And as uh, is my custom each week for the first block of our hour-long program, my producer Brian Hyde and I talk about our chosen hero or heroes of the week. Hey, Brian, how you doing?
0: Fantastic. Good to connect up with you once again. I'm excited about the heroes you chose for this week. Um, I was telling you just before we went on the air, um, what we're going to talk about today was really relevant to a discussion I had a few days ago. And I wish I, wish I had had this information at my disposal because um, it, it's... These, these really are some wonderful heroes. Introduces to the women of British abolitionism.
1: Okay. Uh, this is a great story. It, it culminates, of course, in 1833 when the British Parliament uh, did something quite dramatic. It enacted one of the largest peaceful emancipations of slaves in the history of the world. But that was the culmination of uh, a nearly half century of campaigning by good men and women of conscience uh, throughout Great Britain. And it wasn't easy. Uh, It started in the 1780s, and it took 20 years just to get Parliament to end uh, the trade in slaves. That didn't actually liberate those who had already been enslaved. But that happened in 1807. And then uh, the campaigners for abolition had to continue to work. It took them another 26 years before they got parliament in 1833 uh, to liberate all those who had been enslaved. And I think the most notable thing of it uh, is uh, who led it. It was led by enlightened business people, uh, Quaker activists, Anglican evangelicals. Uh, They had a conscience and they looked around them and said, we've got to stop this business. It was, you know, age old. Slavery had been around forever. Lots of people all over the world had been engaged in it. But Britain was the biggest slave trading power in the late 18th century. And thanks to those Anglican evangelicals, the Quaker activists and their business allies, uh, slavery was ultimately ended um, throughout the British Empire.
0: Now, there's a name that that you mentioned specifically, and that is Mary Wollstonecraft.
1: That's right. Mary Wollstonecraft was one of the pivotal female figures in this. You know, most people could tell you at least one name uh, of a prominent male figure in British abolition, or they have heard at least of the name Wilberforce, William Wilberforce. He was the member of parliament who introduced the bill every year. Uh, to abolish the slave trade and then thereafter work continuously to end slavery itself. They might know Thomas Clarkson, too, or John Newton, who wrote uh, Amazing Grace, uh, one of the most popular hymns uh, of Christendom, and himself, a former slave ship captain. But they may not know names like Mary Wollstonecraft, the uh, active female uh, promoters of abolition. Mary Wollstonecraft, unfortunately, lived a very short life. Life. She died in um, 1797 at the age of only 38, and she's better known for her uh, for being the uh, first libertarian feminist. Uh, by that I mean, oh, uh, okay. By that I mean uh, she was pro limited government, pro freedom, but also interested in securing the equal rights uh, of women. Uh, throughout uh, Great Britain. She spoke out uh, vividly against uh, slavery, as well as uh, the suppression of of women's rights. And because she did, she stimulated a lot of people uh, to get active on behalf of the abolition movement. So she's a very pivotal figure. She raised the issue of slavery in no uncertain terms early, uh, before many other men or women were talking about it. So... She's she's pretty darn important in the whole movement. Now, the uh, another woman I should point out was Hannah Moore. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about her. She was pivotal in this abolition movement as well. Hannah Moore was a very well-educated intellectual. She made a name for herself in the 1770s uh, and 80s and 90s as a playwright and a poet, uh, even before she joined the abolition movement. She was also an active philanthropist uh, coming from a very wealthy family. And at a time when the abolition movement needed some funding uh, for things like pamphlets uh, to posters, you name it. Uh, Hannah Moore was there, checkbook in hand, helping to fund the whole movement. So uh,
0: she's also very important to British abolitionism. Now, didn't they also boycott goods that were made on slave plantations? And how, if so, how did that work out for them?
1: Yeah, that was a a very prominent tool in the abolitionist toolkit, boycotting the products of slavery uh, by encouraging people to abstain from the consumption of things like tobacco or rum, sugar, uh, things that were the product of slave plantations. The whole movement sought to hit the slave traders in their bottom lines. And one of the key figures in that, one of the earliest figures, was a woman named Mary Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S. Uh, Mary Knowles encouraged uh, uh, women in particular to stop buying those things uh, that were the product of slave plantations. And uh, before that was all uh, over, uh, there were several hundred thousand British women, uh, it's estimated, faithfully boycotting sugar and other
0: slave-related goods. Wow. Well— they were obviously very, uh, I mean, they were very morally connected to this. And, and this is the part that I really wish I'd had at my disposal, Larry, um, talking about, you know, how slavery ended in Europe versus how it ended here in, in America. The, they came to their consciences and there came a point where, yeah, where right. there was like, like everybody accepted it. But I think it goes under it goes overlooked. That conscience started in their churches and with individuals like these women you're telling us about.
1: Absolutely. From John Newton on, uh, the author of Amazing Grace, former slave ship captain. Uh, he he uh, died early in this whole movement, but not before helping to stimulate its beginning. And uh, very much so, the uh, churches of England r- rallied to this cause and led the effort
0: uh, to abolish the slave trade and ultimately slavery itself. Now, there were two more women who also played important roles. Tell us about Elizabeth Hyrick and Lucy Townsend.
1: Yeah, Elizabeth Heyrick uh, sort of gave the movement a second wind uh, after the slave trade was abolished in 1807. Uh, Keep in mind that, again, uh, when that was when the trade was abolished in 1807, uh, that simply meant you couldn't uh, apprehend or capture any more Africans, bring them across the ocean and uh, enslave them in plantations in the Caribbean. Uh, But that didn't liberate those already enslaved. But there were a lot of people who thought, okay, we got the slave trade ended, let's just let slavery die out over a generation or two. But Elizabeth Herrick was one of those who stood up and said, no, this is wrong. And there are lots of people, 800,000 of them by 1830, who were uh, very much um, enslaved and needed to be liberated. So she she gave the movement a second wind. Another key figure uh, was Lucy Townsend. Uh, Lucy Townsend was one of those who in the uh, in her home in 1825, founded the first women's anti-slavery organization. Uh, this was in Birmingham, England, and uh, it uh, spawned a, at least 20 other ladies' associations uh, to put pressure on Parliament to abolish slavery.
0: Amazing. So, yeah. th- what what happened there eventually came here. Is it safe to say that uh, that abolition movement made its way across, you know, the Atlantic?
1: Well, it did. And there were a lot of uh, uh, intercommunications between the early abolitionists uh, in the United States and those of the more mature movement uh, in Britain. People like Thomas Clarkson uh, was in regular touch with uh, people like William Lloyd Garrison here in America. Um, And uh, to a significant extent, American abolitionists uh, drew their inspiration from the British movement. Uh, they would be just as dismayed, most of them, uh, however, as uh, you or I would be, that slavery in this country didn't end as it did in Britain, and that is uh, peacefully. Uh, It took a civil war. But uh, in Britain, at least, because of the awakening of the British conscience, uh, when it was finally passed uh, to liberate slaves um, across the board in 1833, it was done without firing a shot.
0: Beautiful. Now, we will have a link to... Uh, the article from fee. dot org, the heroines of British abolition. Um, Larry, I appreciate the perspective this gives on history because sl- slavery is such a loaded topic to start with. But uh, when when you have a little bit of historical perspective, you, you come to realize there were many people working to to bring it to an end for a very very long time before it actually happened.
1: Absolutely, and it's really a shame that today the the um The movement for political correctness loves to paint slavery as a, you know, if not a uniquely American sin, uh, nonetheless, something that uh, should stain America forever. Uh, But it was not uncommon. Uh, It was had been going on for for thousands of years and uh, was in places like Britain and ultimately America, where a lot of people came together and said, this has got to stop. All right. We'll
0: take a real quick break. You have a guest when we return.
1: Yes, I do. Mitchell Nemeth, uh, who holds a master's degree in the study of law, and he's going to talk about a very powerful article that he recently wrote about the student debt crisis. Welcome back to the Read Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. This is your host, Lawrence Reed. For the next three segments of the Read Hour, we'll be talking to Mitchell Nemeth. Mitchell holds a master's degree in the study of law from the University of Georgia School of Law. His work has been featured at fee.org, The Arch Conservative, Mary and West, The Red and Black, Other Places. Mitchell founded the Young Americans for Liberty chapter at the University of Georgia. That's how I first came to know him, as a matter of fact. And uh, today we're going to talk about his recent Fee.org article on uh, student loan debt. Welcome to the Read Hour, Mitchell.
2: Thank you for having me, Larry. appreciate it.
1: Uh, It's my pleasure. Earlier this month, Mitchell, you wrote an article that our listeners can can read if they go to Fee.org and type in your name, Mitchell Nemeth or just N-E-M-E-T-H, Nemeth, your last name. and I'm sure it'll come up. It's entitled, There is No Way to Cancel Student Loan Debt. And before we discuss the argument you offered, how about giving our listeners some background on the issue? How big is it? How serious is it?
2: Sure. So, uh, you know, student loan debt, uh, political candidates, especially in the Democrat Party, uh, they've been talking about it at length, Um so part of the reason for that is uh, there are currently many millions of Americans that are burdened with student loan debt. Uh, currently, there's about 1.6 trillion dollars in outstanding student loan debt. Um,
1: that's 1.6 trillion with a T, right?
2: Trillion with a T. Yeah, yeah. No. So there's been a long progression of policies that have led us to this place. Um, I'll go into that a bit later, but. Um, there was a point in time when the federal government owned zero dollars um, and so you know economists are looking at student loan debt um, from a variety of angles. Uh, you know to start with, the Wall Street Journal has had quite a few articles out recently that talk about how student loan debt crowds out money that families could spend on um, other matters such as you know discretionary spending, whether it be vacations, um, if they need to upgrade the car or um, Different household items like that. Um, And then also, you know, student loan debt can be a problem, uh, you know, for politicians. Uh, Maybe a specific voting block they're appealing to, um, you know, has a problem where maybe they have $200,000 in debt. Uh, Let's say they go to Harvard and, you know, they decide to take out that kind of money in debt. So, you know, um, it it affects politicians directly because, Mm -hmm. you know, constituents.
1: Absolutely. You know, thinking of the uh, housing uh, boom that led to the 2008 financial crisis, we look back on that and know that uh, a lot of the bad loans were fostered by government policy. Uh, Things like uh, artificially low interest rates from the Federal Reserve, from policies coming out of Congress that uh, 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 put pressure on banks to make loans to people who probably shouldn't have gotten those loans, couldn't pay them back. Is there something uh, similar going on here uh, as uh, factors in creating the student loan problem in the first place?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's interesting, going back to that whole housing bubble um, issue, recently some of the uh, Democrat candidates for presidency, um, they've actually been talking about some similar policies that led to that housing bubble in the first place. So, you know, that's a whole other issue in and of itself. Um but uh, as it goes to factors creating the student loan problem, you'd have to go back to World War II. Um, after World War II, many young men were returning home from war, um, and they uh, needed, you know, they needed jobs. They needed uh, a means to come back to life, especially after war with trauma and whatnot. Uh, so Congress decided to create the GI Bill of Rights under the Servicemen's Readjustment Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, From there, um, as more uh, individuals started attending college, uh, you know, college became more acceptable to the broader public. Um, Enrollment grew, um, and and over time, uh, college became uh, a sort of hotbed uh, for activists, especially, you know, like the Woodstock movement and Mm -hmm. and, things of that nature.
1: Yeah, and a lot of people would point to the uh, GI Bill and say, hey, that's a good pattern uh, to uh, extend student loans uh, guaranteed by the government uh, to everybody. Uh, now, you could argue that, hey, you know, if the government chooses as part of its national defense function to uh, uh, compensate uh, those who serve in wartime in by this method, in addition to whatever pay they may have been given, you know, that that's not utterly unjustified. But the problem with uh, all of these measures that throw money at one deserving group or another is that everybody else sooner or later wants to get on the bandwagon. And that's pretty much what's happened with uh, student loans. I mean, almost anybody can get one now, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, And the presidential candidates are promising even more.
2: Uh, yeah, no. Uh at some point you have to question, you know, where the uh the stopping point is. But um until there's any real pushback from uh conservatives and libertarians alike, I don't see that happening.
1: Yeah, uh you know, we've got this massive student loan debt problem, but almost all of the Democrat presidential candidates, or a few notable exceptions, they're out there promising uh I, I I guess this is their debt uh cancellation proposal. They want to make College free, right, uh, for um, students hereafter, and then uh, f- largely forgive the loans that are outstanding.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I know plenty of people uh, who have student loans. You know, I understand the huge burden, uh, you know, especially with the different payment plans that they have. It can really be a hassle. Um, you know, one of the big factors that keeps student loans from uh, being discharged is, you know, federal law itself it's very difficult to discharge student loans through bankruptcy.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, isn't this like uh, just buying votes? I mean, isn't that what these candidates are trying to do? They're using uh, other people's money to buy the votes of the young people they expect uh, to be voting in the primaries.
2: Yeah, actually, I wrote about that in my article. Um, you know, it's really it's astonishing how if you really look at many of these different pitches, the progressive politicians in particular— are uh, putting out to the public, it, it really appears that they're directing these policies at certain voting blocks, especially mm-hmm. ones that they're trying to get out to vote in the primary.
1: Yeah. Well, if, they're gonna if they get into uh, the White House and they cancel student loan debt and, and issue uh, uh, free college uh, to students here in the future, uh, are any of them offering a, a reliable way to pay for all of that? Are they offered any proposals that would uh, make mathematical sense? even if it's a good idea?
2: Yeah, so uh, I guess it just depends what economist you ask. Um, You know, from my perspective, I'm not an economist, but uh, if the idea is just to to soak the rich, I don't see that as a viable long-term solution. Um, You know, recently I just visited a bunch of the Scandinavian countries, and what's remarkable with the differences between uh, what Bernie Sanders claims uh, and other progressive claim that goes on in those countries is that the middle class and upper class tend to actually you know, pay uh, much higher taxes overall, whether that be just income tax or even a value-added tax.
1: Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Mitchell, after our break here in just a moment, uh, I want you to talk about your thesis which is namely that uh, the debt can't simply be canceled as some candidates are proposing. But I just want to add something further that I find so exasperating in this whole presidential contest that these candidates behave as if uh, there is no debt, you know, as if uh, no national debt. We have $22 trillion in debt, but they're all talking about all the uh, wonderful things they just want to do for us for free, Um I, You know, that sounds like uh, what happened in the latter days of ancient Rome when promises were made that couldn't be kept and that ultimately bankrupted uh, uh, Rome itself. Well, it's about time to take a break, Mitchell. We will be back shortly with Mitchell Nemeth talking about his article on uh, student loan debt and why it can't be canceled.
0: Thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the Read Hour. This is Lawrence Reed, your host on the Loving Liberty Network. I'm talking today to Mitchell Nemeth. Mitchell, not so long ago, as a matter of fact, just a couple years ago, was a student who I met at a Young Americans for Liberty meeting at the University of Georgia. Uh, He holds a master's degree now in uh, the study of law from the University of Georgia School of Law. And we're talking today about his recent article at fee.org entitled, There is No Way to Cancel Student Loan Debt. Mitchell, will you tell us about your thesis, namely that uh, we just can't cancel it, as some of the Democratic uh, presidential candidates are proposing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think the best way to look at this article is to uh, think about what it really means to cancel debt. Um, There's actually no way to cancel debt. Someone has to pay it at some point in time, whether that's the debtor or the creditor. Um, And that's really where the focus of the public discussion should be. So um, you can you
1: can although you may be able to cancel it for the debtor that doesn't mean the debt disappears it just means it's shifted to uh, somebody else. Absolutely
2: it's burden shifting. Um so you know when we look at this uh from a public policy standpoint we have to look at it in the context of you know the United States as a whole. We're currently 22.5 trillion with a T dollars in debt. Um, And, you know, a lot of these proposals would tack on another $1.5, $1.6 trillion in debt. Um, You know, that may be beneficial to those who have student loans, but we have to look at it from the grand context of uh, the United States and how that would affect um, our ability to repay uh, other debts that we owe, uh, how we would fund other social programs, uh, fund the military, uh, things of that nature.
1: So, But the student loan debt is actually owed uh, to whom? The government, banks, uh, other lenders, or all of those?
2: Yeah, so that's where it gets interesting. Um, So student loan debt is currently largely owned by the federal government. Um, That is uh, caused by a variety of policies put in place uh, since the 1960s. Um, In 1965, there was a federal government law that came in and basically forced the government to guarantee uh, student loans in the case that they would fail. Um, And then under the Obama administration, there was a law passed within a few days, actually, of the Affordable Care Act, where the federal government, uh, in effect, took over the uh, the student loan market.
1: So uh, no longer do you go typically to... uh Uh, a bank uh, to get your government-guaranteed student loan. You get it directly from the government then, huh? Uh, Correct. Well, what was the thinking behind that?
2: Uh, I I guess the the thinking was that there are um, many different degrees where the economic value, uh, as you would say, like the salary, wouldn't pay a sufficient wage to uh, make a given loan uh, profitable. So um, the idea is that you would want to protect uh, certain studies, you know, let's say even the humanities. Let's say uh, someone wants to study, you know, the classics. Uh, Maybe there's not a job out there that would warrant uh, $60,000 a year in uh, student debt. But um, the government felt that, you know, it's a good way to protect students who are interested in the different studies.
1: Yeah, I think there was some... uh also of the uh, perception that uh, well we don't need uh, private banks uh, making any money off of this we'll just uh, do the uh, the socialist thing and have the government do it all from uh, from the get go uh, that was uh, i think part of the thinking of the uh, many of the people in the, in the obama administration just get rid of the banks and their role and we'll have the taxpayers pick up the tab
2: yeah absolutely
1: yeah now, in your article, which listeners, by the way, can read, and I encourage them to do so by going to fee.org, type in your last name, Nemeth, N-E-M-E-T-H, and it should come up uh, pretty quickly. In that article, you put these numbers in a, in a very fascinating perspective, uh, namely the $1.6 trillion that uh, student loan debt cancellation would, would uh, uh, prompt. Uh, what could we do with that 1.6 trillion dollars if we didn't just cancel student debt with it?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know I gave a few examples, and I'll go ahead and read them off for the listeners. Yeah, I thought they were great. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, so first off, you could give each of uh, Los Angeles County's 59,000 homeless residents around 27 million dollars each. <laughs> Um, You could buy every resident of New Jersey a $175,000 yacht. (laughs) You could give each of the United States roughly 40,000 homeless veterans around $40 million each. You could buy every resident of Texas a Tesla Model 3. (laughs) You, um, You could develop 40 bases on the moon and then I have another one that I added. You could also afford all of Canada's or Spain's GDP, which is around 1.7 trillion dollars.
1: Wow! I bet we could buy Greenland with that too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: The question well, what the uh, ROI is on that,
2: but um,
1: yeah. <laughs> but it, but you know those are humorous examples, but it does point out that everything has a cost and. Uh, there's a trade-off. If you spend uh, the limited resources you have in this direction for that purpose, then those dollars aren't available for that direction and that other purpose. And yet people throw these numbers around as if, uh, you know, it's all manna from heaven, as if uh, we could do this and it wouldn't be any skin off anybody's nose.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great way to put it, honestly, Um, especially for younger voters. Um, You know, when— uh, these, a lot of these politicians tend to talk about wealth. They talk about it as if there's some boogeyman who has a billion dollars um, and he does nothing with it or she does nothing with it. And so you've got to really put these figures in a perspective so that everyone can really understand what does it mean to have one trillion dollars in wealth?
1: Yeah, yeah. I saw some figures not long ago, maybe slightly off, but uh, the principle is certainly valid if the numbers are slightly um, slightly off. And that is that you could take every dollar that every millionaire in the country has um, and uh, you could take 100 percent of it uh, above a million dollars and have enough to run the government at current levels of expenditure for less than a year, something of that nature. But then, of course, you wouldn't get it uh, the next year, right? Because they'd stop working. They'd say, well, what the heck? You know, I take all the risk, and you take the money? So that would be a one-shot deal, uh, this idea that you could just soak the rich and somehow they'd be back next year with another bag of money for you.
2: Yeah, and I think that's why when it comes to these, uh, you know, bold, as some people would call it, but some of these uh, more... Um, incredible policy proposals. You have to really think about what it means on the surface and then ask more questions about it. You can't just take it for granted uh, or at face value.
1: Yeah, and by the way, I should point out, if people haven't sensed uh, by the sound of your voice, that you too are a young person. As I mentioned, you uh, are out of the University of Georgia not all that long. Uh, How does it hit you as a young person when you look at these massive numbers, like $22.5 trillion in debt, Uh, and uh, knowing that it's people like you with 50 years, 40 years ahead of you of working lifetime, that you're going to end up uh, having to somehow pay for a lot of that.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, it really is remarkable. Um, You know, I grew up in a very heavily blue or progressive area, and um, so now that uh, my friends and I, we all started working, uh, it really starts to hit you what it means uh, to be taxed at any rate. Um, even with the uh, you know the Republican tax cuts, you know you still are really understanding what it means to be taxed at a given rate, uh, whether that be capital gains or income tax. Uh, now looking to the future, it, it is a bit scary, especially when you look into um, you know what future interest rates could be if uh, the national debt explodes or something of that nature. Um, but you got to put it into perspective, and I think that's where a lot of uh, people in the thought space you know, oftentimes fail, because a trillion dollars is a ton of money, probably money that I won't see in my lifetime.
1: Yeah, and you, you have to wonder, uh, how long will China continue to buy uh, American debt uh, if it's coming from an entity that is uh, so up to its eyeballs in red ink that you wonder if it can ever be paid back? Well, uh, Mitchell, we're going to take a break here shortly and uh, come back for our final segment. We've been talking, everybody, to uh, Mitchell Nemeth. Mitchell Nemeth is uh, a graduate of the University of Georgia's Law School and also the author of the article we've been discussing, There is No Way to Cancel Student Loan Debt, which is available um, uh, at fee.org. Just type in Mitchell's last name, Nemeth, and you can read this article that we're discussing. After the break... Uh, Mitchell, will be back to talk about uh, the fundamental fairness or lack thereof in this whole idea of debt cancellation. Welcome back to the Read Hour, everyone. This is Lawrence Reed, your host on the Loving Liberty Network. I'm talking today to Mitchell Nemeth. Mitchell is a graduate of the University of Georgia School of Law and the author of a recent article we're discussing titled There is No Way to Cancel Student Loan Debt. You can find that article at fee.org just by typing in his last name, Nemeth, N-E-M-E-T-H. Mitchell, uh, I wanted to ask you, In this whole business of uh, student loan debt forgiveness or debt cancellation that uh, candidates for president are proposing, isn't there a fundamental fairness issue in this whole thing? Wouldn't taxpayers who paid their own way through college or avoided debt be forced to pay for those who ran up debt, in some cases even for rather dubious degrees?
2: Yeah, great question. Um, So when it comes to the idea of fundamental fairness, I always like to start with my favorite academic uh, Professor Jonathan Haidt from New, New York University. Oh. Um, so he has this really good book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. I think it's a really good starting place to understand uh, how both conservatives and uh, progressives view fairness. Um, conservatives tend to view fairness from a proportionality standpoint, whereas progressives view fairness from an equality standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think once you start by understanding the psychology um, of the different voters, I think you can really understand where these proposals are coming from. Um, So obviously these policies are inherently unfair to those who've already paid uh, for their student loans. Um, I don't think anyone would dispute that. I, I think the issue you have is that um, the progressive politicians tend to be um, seeking the millennial and the younger voters, mm-hmm. even though I will note um, that student loans are owned by older voters as well. So it's not only uh, from that standpoint, but um, yeah, I, I honestly, I, I think you have to understand the psychology behind it to understand the, the uh, definitions of fairness.
1: It would seem to me that part of that psychology is an unwillingness to hold people accountable for their decisions. There's a question here of uh, who's responsible. Uh, Are there any students who were coerced into assuming debt? I mean, wasn't this a personal choice? Isn't it a matter of responsibility for a person to uh, own up to the commitments they've made, honor their promises, uh, to do things like pay back a loan? Uh, whatever happened to responsibility
2: yeah, and you know I, I obviously agree with that viewpoint. Um, you know if I go and take out um, a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage on a house and i don 't pay it the the bank can take the house back um, so obviously you can 't take education back, but you know i 'm responsible for taking out that money um, so it 's just such a complicated issue. Um, the problem is that um, libertarians and conservatives tend to view these issues from an individual responsibility lens.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, progressives on the other hand tend to view these problems as structural so they want to uproot the current structure that's in place they believe it's more fair uh, if government you know just provides uh, things for free quote unquote
1: but boy, what does it say to uh, the person who decided, hey, I really don't want this debt. I'm going to be more prudent in deciding uh, how to pursue a higher education. I'm, I'm going to take a year or two off if I have to to earn the money to pay for it, keep my debt to a minimum, and invest in uh, degrees that are likely to produce substantial income later. Uh, what do you say to those people uh, that hey, sorry, you 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 were just suckers. Uh, we're we're going to cancel everybody's debt. Sorry, you you uh, were a responsible person, uh, but uh, this is in fairness to you know other people who want their debt canceled. I mean, what do you say to those people?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that's really uh, the hardest part um, that any of these politicians would see in trying to enact a quote unquote free uh, college program. Um, when you have prominent democratic senators like Amy Klobuchar saying, and I'll quote her, I wish if I was a magic genie and could give that free four year college to everyone and we could afford it, I would. Um, you know, I think at, um, at the core, uh, the democratic party, their leaders understand that this is not, uh, possible. I don't think the vast majority of voters really, um, uh, are behind this, um, But the problem you have is in a primary, uh, the most energized and active voters are out there uh, looking uh, for their candidates. So that's why you're seeing some of these more um, outlandish policies.
1: If I remember correctly, there were some boos in the audience uh, uh, for that comment when she said it. So there apparently are some people who think that uh, somehow (laughs) we've got the money, we'll find the money, we'll pay for it somehow, or who cares?
2: yeah those are probably the same folks um who don't really understand what twenty two and a half trillion dollars is um or they believe that you could just confiscate the wealth from you know let's say the top corporations like Amazon and apple and you know apply that to their preferred social program
1: yeah well, they got a math problem i think if they, if that's what they think yeah uh, absolutely now if if canceling student debt isn't the answer and and I think You've pointed out, your article certainly does, that it is not the answer. Uh, what are some viable solutions? Can we do anything uh, that, that uh, is, is fair at the same time it uh, is, fixes the problem?
2: Yeah, so um, I always like to resort to social uh, sort of solutions rather than government-aided solutions. So, you know, in the near term, uh, you know, we can look uh, to change the stigma around college, I think, uh, with a lot of jobs now um, requiring some sort of computer science or coding skill set, these are tools that you could learn on your own through the internet or through YouTube or other programs. So we can start there. Um, We can definitely look at online education. It's a lot cheaper. Um, It's a lot easier to access. You don't have to go move across the country and spend money on a dormitory and things of that nature. Here's a, another great example would be uh, looking into the trades. I know there's many job openings in uh, the different trades. And, you know, one of the, uh, the, the people that's really pushed the trades is my favorite actor uh, from the show Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe. All right. um, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, tried putting forth all these scholarships that help uh, 18-year-olds um, get money to pay for school. So, you know, I think that's definitely a start.
1: From your time at college uh, at the University of Georgia, Mitchell, did you notice uh, any differences between uh, students who paid their own way or worked their way through college uh, and those who simply went into substantial debt to pay for it? Did you notice any difference in terms of their uh, their work ethic, their their study ethic, their uh, evaluation of the college education that they were getting?
2: Yeah, you know, I would definitely um, come across many people who worked harder than others. Um, I I know many people top of my head, and obviously I'm not going to name them, but I know those folks who had their parents pay the full tuition bill, they many times would skip class. They wouldn't be as dedicated. They viewed college almost as an extension of high school. It seemed like a chore to them. Um, Whereas those who, you know, had a job after school – Uh, they tended to view college as a great opportunity, as something more than just, um, you know, uh, a chore, to say.
1: Yeah. Well, we've got about uh, a little less than two minutes uh, in the program, Mitchell. And uh, let's suppose you had uh, the following opportunity. All the Democratic candidates for president, uh, I think uh, there's still close to 20 of them, they're all in one room and you've got, five minutes to uh, tell them what you think they need to hear on this issue. We don't have five minutes here, but if you could condense your response, what would you say to them?
2: Yes, I think a a natural starting point is to change federal law that exempts or makes difficult uh, the discharge of student loans through bankruptcy. I think that's an easy fix. Um, Another proposal, and I have to give credit where it's due, Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders has proposed that the federal government no longer charge interest on student loans. Um, I I think that just makes sense, that the government wouldn't profit off loans and then blame uh, the other people for charging interest. That doesn't make sense to me.
1: That that Um, raises the question of if they're going to use taxpayer money, why shouldn't the taxpayers be entitled to some kind of return on their money?
2: Yeah. uh, You know, I think the whole system is, uh, it's... Definitely uh, an amalgamation of different policies pointing us in different directions. So um, there's a lot to be done.
1: Hey, thanks Mitchell. Uh, We're about out of time. We've been talking today to Mitchell Nemeth, the author of an article you can read at fee.org entitled, There is No Way to Cancel Student Loan Debt. Thanks again, Mitchell, for being with us today, for your good work on this subject. And let's hope this is uh, one big problem that uh, we can find some big solution to.
2: All right. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Brian, how are we doing on time? I
1: guess we're about out. Okay.
0: Incredible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.